Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by our pals at DraftKings. Hey, the big college hoops tournament's finally here. Get in on all of this week's action and download the DraftKings app now. And be sure to enter the code GOODSEATS during sign-up and enter the free $1 million survivor pool. Again, use the code GOODSEATS to enter the DraftKings free $1 million survivor pool. Eligibility restrictions and terms and conditions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. And now, here's our show. The Memphis Southland have just taken the field to a roaring welcome from thousands of fans at Memphis Memorial Stadium as Dr. Tom Ferguson strikes up the music over on the other side of the field. And we're just a few minutes away from the opening kickoff. We'll give you the starting lineup. Detroit will get the ball first. They won the coin toss. Memphis will be on defense, and we'll check those lineups in just a moment. That's tonight's pregame show. Stay tuned now for the Southland and the Detroit Wheels live from Memphis Memorial Stadium next over the Southland Radio Network. South men football is on the air. And now, here doing play-by-play and color are Dick Palmer and Bill Haney. Good evening from Memphis Memorial Stadium. It's the Memphis Southland and the Detroit Wheels. Our national anthem is being sung on the field by Debbie Kincaid, Miss Tennessee. Let's see if we can pick it up. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello, friends. It's your pal, Tim, and it's Good Seats Still Available. Yeah, this curious little podcast that's uh, devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Yeah, that's what we'd love to uh, roll around in here on this uh, this little show uh, it's our little exploration into um, you know, teams and leagues and, and even major events that were part of the uh, pro sports landscape uh, a few decades ago, even maybe even a century ago, depending on how far we like to go back. Uh, it just depends on where we spin the dial each week. But uh, it is the uh, the want of this little show to sort of uh, laser in on these sort of little uh, forgotten dust bunnies of history. And uh, we welcome you once again to the proceedings. And the clip is a bit of a tip off, but uh, just a, a little of what we're in store for this week. Our guest is Dennis Crawford, and he is the author of a great uh, new book, literally just out, hot off the presses, uh, and is devoted to the life and teams, and story, of course, of John F. Bassett, also known as Johnny. Johnny F. Bassett, Maverick Entrepreneur of North American Sports. That's the title of the book. And Johnny Bassett is a fascinating character. If we ever create a Hall of Fame for uh, things forgotten uh, in the good seats still available podcast uh, halls of fame. If we ever create them, uh, John Bassett, John F. Bassett, Johnny Bassett will absolutely be uh, among the short list of uh, considered inductees for sure. Why you ask? Well, 
Uh, he is the uh, three-time uh, Forgotten Sports uh, founder and owner, uh, and actually various permutations thereafter. Uh, John F. Bassett was uh, the scion of uh, a Bassett family uh, that uh, was uh, well-known in Toronto and Canadian publishing circles, a pretty well-off family for sure. Uh, and Johnny, uh, you didn't necessarily want to immediately or uh, elegantly, shall we say, follow in dad's footsteps. Uh, he kind of wanted to carve his own path out. And uh, the way he wanted to do that was, wait for it, owning and uh, running and and, and uh, sticking it to the man of professional sports uh, in these various challenger leagues and teams. And uh, the first of which you just heard uh, that clip from July 1974. I don't know specifically the date. I used to know it and I forgot it off the top of my head. I'm sure more than a few of you are yelling the actual date uh, to into your devices right now. And I thank you kindly for correcting the record. But July 1974, that's Dick Palmer on the play-by-play and Bill Haney with the color commentary. And of course, Miss Debbie Kincaid, Miss Tennessee 1974, singing the national anthem for the first ever home regular season game of the Memphis Southmen of the World Football League. Uh, 1974, as you well know, World Football League action coming at you. And uh, of course, the wheels, uh, the Detroit wheels, of course, their competition and the wheels of the league uh, soon to fall off uh, later in the mid uh, middle middle part of the season. And, and thereafter, it did limp to a, to a, its conclusion, as we've talked about on many previous episodes. You can look those up on our, our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, of course. Uh, but the Memphis Southman, uh, an interesting journey just to even get to that opening day game. Uh, Johnny Bassett originally had envisioned that team, his first ever major pro sports uh, effort as the Toronto Northmen uh, of this World Football League, as it was uh, being put together by people like Gary Davidson and and his pals. We get into some of that conversation in our conversation, some of the specific facts that led to the team before even uh, uh, getting uh, uh, Toronto uh, off the ground, moved to, to Memphis uh, for a number of reasons, which we'll, uh, we'll delve into. Uh, but that's just the fascinating uh, beginnings of the journey uh, of pro sports uh, maverickness, if you will, of Johnny Bassett, who later went on uh, to, well, maybe not later, right, almost concurrently, uh, to get involved uh, in the World Hockey Association as well. Uh, and yes, of course, there's some linkage there because uh, folks like our old pal Dennis Murphy and uh, and Gary Davidson and others were certainly part of that extravaganza as well. Uh, we get into the story with Dennis uh, in our conversation. Johnny Bassett uh, bought the uh, Ottawa Nationals uh, of the then fledgling WHA and moved them to Toronto, his hometown, to create uh, the direct challenger, I guess, to the Toronto Maple Leafs at the time, the Toronto Toros. After a couple of years there, moving them to Birmingham, Alabama, of all places, where they became uh, the Birmingham Bulls and uh, fascinating stories there uh, as all part of that, too. You know, sort of breaking into the South, deep South and bringing pro hockey at the top level. Uh, Johnny Bassett was behind that and uh, also was very involved in in league uh, activities and negotiations. Wayne Gretzky makes an appearance. Uh, Eli Gold. Yes, the voice of. Uh, the Alabama Crimson Tide football program makes an appearance in, in this conversation. Yes, that's where he got his uh, real first uh, pro broadcasting start, was broadcasting the Birmingham Bulls, if you can believe that. And yes, we've reached out to Eli Gold, and he has uh, declined humbly 
uh, to uh, to be part of our conversations. But uh, maybe we'll uh, convince him at some point to to come and talk to us about that year and change that uh, he was a Birmingham Bulls uh, broadcaster. But I digress. Johnny Bassett uh, was the believer in chief, if you will, of hockey in the South and was responsible for bringing uh, the then Toronto Toros to Birmingham to become the Bulls. Uh, and a two-year extravaganza of that in the World Hockey Association. Now, if that weren't enough, and by golly, it, it ought to be, um, and we get into our conversation further with Dennis, uh, I don't think Johnny was sort of in a real hurry to kind of get back into the pro sport, sports ownership thing, uh, and especially in the realm of, I guess you would call them challenger leagues, after kind of uh, getting burned uh, twice uh, by those two. Uh, by the way, I, I we don't get into it too much, but uh, Johnny was also the owner of, wait for it, a World Team Tennis franchise as well. Yes, again, there's Dennis Murphy and 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 his uh, his gang, uh, the Toronto slash Buffalo Royals. Uh, we don't really get into too much of that conversation in here, but uh, that was also a dalliance of Johnny's too. So if those three teams that all sort of went kaput for various reasons weren't enough to kind of scare him away from being a pro sports owner again, well, guess what? He came back for more and maybe even uh, an astonishing achievement, his uh, his role in the USFL and the Tampa Bay Bandits. Yes, partial ownership by Burt Reynolds and a whole bunch of others down south in uh, in Tampa Bay. The USFL Tampa Bay Bandits was the Johnny Bassett owned football franchise of the USFL. We've talked about that and them a bit in previous episodes as well. Uh, alas, uh, uh, this was uh, the final uh, curtain, if you will, for uh, one John F. Bassett. Uh, but uh, as he uh, succumbed to uh, to cancer uh, during his ownership of that time and, and tumultuous times, as it were, uh, the USFL going through all kinds of fits and starts. And uh, famously, uh, Johnny Bassett was uh, sort of the uh, the counterweight, at least for as long as he could hold it on. Uh, against the uh, the Donald Trump uh, era uh, and uh, I guess a sort of a group of of folks that uh, uh, over time became more and more vocal and uh, wanted to sort of uh, move the USFL from a spring league to fall directly competing with the NFL. Johnny Bassett was dead set against it. He was a uh, an origin originalist uh, of the USFL proposition, wanting to keep it in spring in its differentiated way. Uh, a believer in the Dixon plan uh, and uh, Trump and his uh, uh, his uh, loud voice and um, persuasive ways uh, ultimately uh, became more of the majority and uh, Johnny Bassett ultimately more of the minority thinking. And uh, we all know how that ended. Uh, tragic ending to a, 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 a wonderful life and one very spirited of Johnny F. Bassett. Uh, a, a maverick sports entrepreneur, and we're going to get into that dynamic story, uh, and it's fun too, uh, and and well-remembered, uh, uh, some great memories to come with our, our guest this week, Dennis Crawford, as we talk about the life and teams of one Johnny F. Bassett. This is a fun conversation, and uh, stick around for it. You will enjoy it, I, uh, I guarantee. Uh, let's see. How about a sponsor that uh, fits the bill nicely this week. Why don't we go to our friends at 503 Sports, shall we? Yes, it's in beautiful Portland, Oregon, the Pacific Northwest, our pal Dustin Alameda. 503 Sports, it's 503-sports.com. Don't forget the dash, 503-sports. 
Dot-com. They, they call themselves the king of throwbacks, and rightly so. 10% off all of your purchases when you use the promo code SEATS. And you're going to find great shirts and caps and handcrafted, custom-made jerseys for all of the teams that we just talked about. Can you believe it? Yeah. If you want to get a, uh, a T-shirt of the Memphis Southmen, um, also uh, known affectionately as the Memphis Grizzlies, uh, or a jersey, uh, either in their uh, burnt orange or white uh, 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 setup. Uh, hell, if you even want a T-shirt with the not even uh, they never even saw the light of day. But if you want a T-shirt with the logo of the Toronto Northmen, you can get that at 503-sports.com. Promo code SEATS for 10% off. Hey, you want to get a Birmingham Bulls and or Toronto Toros jersey or shirt or cap? You can get that there, too. Hell, you can get, if you get the jersey, you can get your name and number on the back if you'd like, too. No problem at 503-sports.com. Promo code SEATS for 10% off. Get the hint. And, of course, the Tampa Bay Bandits. You will find a, a jersey there. Uh, I think it's in red. Uh, no, you can also get it in white. You can get it your choice. Uh, and again, your number on the back, your name on the back, whatever you want. A, t- a Tampa Bay Bandits a T-shirt. Uh, it's uh, either you can get the uh, Bandits logo with a red sort of background shirt, or you can get their uh, their uh, their catchphrase "Bandit Ball" uh, in the in an alternate logo fashion there too. Uh, and there's also a beautiful looking uh, Tampa Bay Bandits cap there. All of that stuff and more from all of those leagues and other teams, etc., can be found at 503 Sports. Again, that's 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS, 10% off all of your purchases. And what better way to commemorate uh, some of those memories from the great USFL, the wonderful WHA, and the lamentable World Football League, uh, and the specific teams that were owned, of course, by Johnny F. Bassett. Uh, We thank Dustin for his uh, sponsorship of the show, and we thank you for continuing to listen. Our conversation, here it comes, Dennis Crawford, as we talk about the life and teams of Johnny F. Bassett. This is a treasure trove of interestingness, as always. Please enjoy. Give us a little bit of background about you and and the vortex that you came across to get get swallowed up into the story of uh, of our subject at hand, Johnny Johnny Bassett. Well, I was born and raised in uh, Largo, Florida, which is in Pinellas County, right across the bay from the city of Tampa. And I was 12 years old in 1983 when the Bandits started to play, and. It was just the perfect time for a 12-year-old boy to fall in love with a football team, especially a football team with a live horse mascot that ran around the field with a a man dressed up like an outlaw shooting off his six-shooter whenever there was a touchdown. And um, not to to find a point of it, very curvaceous cheerleaders at at a time when I was starting to notice that as well. And Lonnie Anderson uh, being on billboards throughout the Bay Area wearing a very uh, tight bandit shirt. And then just the team itself being so much fun and so imaginative. Um, This is the first time I'd seen football played like that. And so I was just very impressionable. And so um, as I got older and realized I wanted to go into writing uh, and into history, 
Um, I started out writing uh, histories of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers just because they had a longer history for me to delve into, but I decided I really wanted to write a comprehensive history of the Tampa Bay Bandits. But as I started to do the research, I realized that their owner was a fascinating man in his own right. And I went down a rabbit hole called Johnny Frederick Bassett. And before you knew it, I realized that he was an amazing man. He had more than the bandits. He had a team in the world football league, a team in the world hockey association. Uh, he produced movies. He was friends with famous musicians and actors. He, he battled Canadian parliament over the right to bring American style football. He uh, married a beautiful woman um, and had four wonderful children. And just, I just became enamored with him. And I realized that, no, this is the book. Uh, it's not a history of the bandits. It's a biography of Johnny F. Bassett. That's the story that needs to be told. Well, why don't we start with with the bandits and kind of maybe work our way back or, or just at least since that was your entry point. Um, give us, uh, a, I guess, a, a view of a 12 year old Dennis and, and, <laughs> and, and, and I mean, you're hinting at some of it, but what, um, I mean, you know, there's a pro football team, right. in in, in the form yes. of the Buccaneers there, right. You know, the rowdies are kind of still around, but they're sort of, you know, sort of, uh, diminishing as the NASL is diminishing, uh, not really, you know, the lightning is certainly, making a, a splash. Well, no, I guess the lightning wasn't even in the radar at that point, right? No, no. I, we had the, I don't even know if we had the Tampa Bay thrillers yet of the Continental Basketball Association. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and the story of the Buccaneers and the Rowdies even before them, right, is sort of the putting Tampa Bay, yep. which is not a, not an actual city. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful it's a, body of water. Yes. Yeah, it's a beautiful body of water, uh, uh, which uh, around sits two uh, great cities, but, um, but yeah, that, arguably those were the teams that sort of put Tampa on the Tampa St. Pete on the, you know, professional top tier sports map. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- wh- give me a, give me a sense of this bandit ball thing, right? Burt Reynolds is part of this mix. Obviously, uh, a, a, uh, a where is Johnny Bassett in your sort of twelve year old, thirteen year old brain? How much is he sort of in the mix? Uh, how much do you know of him, or is this just? Hey, this is the bandits thing. And then I just, then you stumble across the, the ownership along the way. Well, I, there, there's a little bit to unpack here, but to, to, to kind of give everybody the context of Tampa Bay in 1982 actually is when the USFL is formed is, uh, there, there's not a long sporting calendar as far as professional sports in Tampa Bay at this time. You know, it's a great place to grow up as a child. There's plenty of activities to do. There's a lot of athletics, but it's mostly participatory. You can fish, you can swim, you can uh, play golf, you can play tennis, you can play softball and soccer um, all year round. But there's not a lot to call our very own. There's the, there is the Tampa Bay Rowdies of the uh, North American Soccer League who won a title. Um, and everybody was very excited about that. And they had wonderful, colorful jerseys and a wonderful fight song with you know, people like Randy Marsh and Derek Smedhurst. Um, and then there's the Buccaneers, which was our first real major team. And even though they had made the NFL playoffs in three out of four years, they do not play a very exciting form of football. 
uh, you know, God bless John McKay and, and Ricky Bell and Leroy Selman. They were very good at what they did, but it was kind of a dull offense to watch. You know, John McKay's dream would be to win any game seven to six. Um, and so they have just decided not to re-sign Doug Williams, who was the quarterback that led them to all of those playoff victories. So everybody in Tampa can see that uh, the Buccaneers era, uh, their run is going to be over. Little did we realize it would be over for almost two decades, but it's, it's about to end. And here comes this new football league called the United States Football League. And they're going to play their games in the spring and the summer. And I don't know much about Johnny Bassett when I'm 12 years old because I don't know how many, you know, I don't know too many 12 year olds who would be really excited to study a CEO, but he brings in Burt Reynolds as one of his co-owners and everybody knows Burt Reynolds. You know, he's a, a Florida legend, both from Florida state university and just as the bandit. Um, as his uh, stage persona. And so you've got Steve Spurrier, who's a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback from the University of Florida. He's going to be named head coach for the first time. And this, this team decides that they're going to draft nothing but players from Florida, Florida State, and the University of Miami for the most part. So there's this sense in Tampa that not only is there a new team, but it's going to be our team. It, it's going to be all of these local kids getting a chance to play a new and exciting sport under a legendary coach uh, such as Steve Spurrier. And so that's, that's where the excitement came in was it was something brand new. And this is the first time where I see something being built. I was five years old when the Buccaneers and the Rowdies started. So I don't have a lot of concrete memory of their first year, but I'm here on the ground floor with the bandits. This is going to be a team of my own uh, to grow up with. And I thought at the time to spend the rest of my life with little did I know it would be three years um, and they'd be gone by the time I was in high school. But, but that's where the excitement comes from. And it's, it's not really until I got older and I wanted to uh, go back to school and become a historian um, that I truly do realize the role that Johnny F. Bassett played in uh, giving my hometown something exciting and realizing that that seemed to be his entire reason for existence was to provide spectacle to whatever community he happened to be in. Why Tampa Bay area? He, he lived there, I guess, partially. <laughs> you know, it's it, strangely, you know, the USFL, um, you know, like a lot of challenger leagues sort of try to walk that sort of fine line between, you know, markets that didn't have said sport in this case, you know, NFL football and mm -hmm. uh, markets that, uh, you know, uh, they needed sort of major league status in like a New York or Los Angeles or Chicago, right. To, to show how major league they were. This is sort of, I guess, Tampa Bay, strikes me as being maybe a somewhat odd choice because it's neither of those things. Well, his family had been vacationing in Longboat Key uh, going back 15, 20 years. They had a, a vacation house. Longboat Key is about roughly an hour south of Tampa. And so they spent a great deal of time 
in the Bay Area. And in the early 1980s, during a, a period where he was out of sports completely, his, his WFL and WHA teams had gone away. He decided to build a condominium complex in Longboat Key called uh, the Players Club. He was going to build a condominium that would cater to world-class tennis. And so he builds his condominium there, and he pretty much starts to live full-time in Longboat Key. He and his wife, Sue, established the, their, their household down there. So when David Dixon approaches him and says, I have an idea for a new football league, Bassett doesn't want to go back to Toronto because while he loved Toronto for all of his days, there's still some hurt feelings over the um, Toros and the Northmen. Um, Birmingham's already taken. Memphis, he could have returned to, but it had been a while since he had left Memphis. So Tampa Bay is where he decides to do, um, where, where he decides to place his team because he now considers himself a resident of the Tampa Bay area. And he's also very practical. He realizes the growth possibility of the area. Uh, Tampa Bay is a huge metropolitan area now, and it was by no means a small town in the early 1980s, but it, it had not undergone that quantum leap and population explosion quite yet, but he could see that it was coming. And his son, also named John Bassett, told me that his father always viewed that area between Sarasota, Tampa, and Orlando as a golden horseshoe, and that if you placed any kind of venture within that arc, you were going to strike gold. And so that's why he decided to take the Tampa Bay area as his own, because he never intended to compete head-to-head -head with uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, and they also have a world-class stadium in Tampa, um, they're going to host a Super Bowl uh, after the first USFL season. Super Bowl 18 is hosted there. So there's just a lot going on in the Tampa Bay area. And I know I kind of sound like a Tampa Bay cheerleader, but yeah, I am proud of my hometown. And, and it was really on the verge of greatness at that time. All right. Well, before we, I don't, um, I, let, why don't we dial it back and then we'll maybe come back to this as the exclamation point, because obviously uh, Johnny Bassett was not only uh, a go-getter uh, owner in this uh, this league, uh, but you know, obviously had a, a major uh, effect in uh, some of the decisions that were made or were not made about that league. Uh, but mm -hmm. I, I want before we get to sort of that maybe that that denouement, that sort of that kicker at the end. Mm -hmm. um, why don't we dial it back to where your pursuit of uh, his story kind of emanates from because it, it frankly comes out of out of his his family uh, and his dad in particular, right? Who was, uh, I guess, at one sense, sort of a an archetypical um, bon vivant slash mm -hmm. sports owner slash industrialist. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm guessing that's some of where the seeds of uh, Johnny F uh, gets sort of his moxie and his his worldview is from, is from his dad. Yeah. And I think another reason why I admire him is he's also another good Irishman. Uh, the Bassett family um, is originally from Ireland. His grandfather, and they have this habit of naming every child John, but always giving them different middle names. So that was kind of fun to write down in the book. His grandfather, John, is a publisher of the Montreal Gazette. 
and was very influential in Canadian politics. Never a politician, but somebody who always knew somebody and could be a kingmaker. And his father, John White Hughes Bassett, follows into that family business, running newspapers, becoming very friendly with politicians. His father actually does try and run for office as a conservative and candidate on multiple occasions, but does not win. His father founds and runs the Toronto Telegram, which was a major newspaper in the city until the 1970s, helps to found CFTO, uh, which is the first commercial television station in Toronto and kind of helps Jerry rig the CTV, the Canadian television network, so that he can show Canadian football games. Uh, becomes part owner of the Argonauts, is on the control board of the Maple Leafs and Maple Leaf Garden. Um, and I believe also had a little bit to say about the Montreal Forum as well. So, you know, there's, there's a, uh, a family-run multimedia and sports empire uh, that Johnny Bassett grows up in. And also, he is a great athlete in his own right. Uh, he's a Davis Cup quality tennis player he plays in the davis cup for his his native country he actually does play in the u.s open um he's a quality goalie who the maple leafs want to sign uh while he's still in high school uh but a freak knee injury as he played quarterback um ends those careers and so he follows his dad into the media empire and never really loses his love for Sports. So he spends about a decade working at CFTO, CTV, and Baton Broadcasting. He's helping his dad with the newspaper. And he comes up with an opportunity to sponsor an automobile race. He convinces his dad that the Telegram should sponsor a race at uh, um, Mosport Park just outside of Toronto, a two-and-a-half-mile oval. And they, they sponsor the Telegraph Trophy Race. Then one day he's watching Wide World of Sports and he sees that Montreal has a Grand Prix race that's running through the streets of Montreal and he decides that's something I need for Toronto. And so he sets about setting up a race course in Toronto um, that terrifies the city fathers because it's going to run through the, the city streets on Sunday on Sunday afternoons. And so the city of Toronto refuses to allow him to run the race. And this is the first example of what I like to say that Johnny Bassett was just always about 10 years ahead. Um, because after he dies, there is a Grand Prix race run through Toronto and it's run almost on the exact same course that Johnny Bassett laid out in the 1960s that the city of Toronto refused to support. And, uh, I guess as make good, they, they named the winner's trophy, uh, after Johnny Bassett. Um, so that's, that's where he's, he's starting to come into sports. Um, he does some movie productions for a while. Uh, he produces a movie with Keir Doulet called, uh, Paperback Hero. That's very well received. He is the one that brings the Broadway production of Hair to Toronto, which makes him quite a bit of money, um, and gets his name in the society pages. But that's still, uh, that's still not enough. And so he decides when the Ottawa Nationals of the World Hockey Association becomes available, 
this is what I want to do. I want to own a professional sports franchise. That's, that's how I can be like my dad, um, but also put my own unique spin on sports. So he's kind so, of a scion, but, but also looking to kind of, you know, break out of that in his own sort of way, but not necessarily mm-hmm. totally going rogue, like getting out of the royal family type stuff. Correct. Um, and I, th- I thought his son, John, who I, I had the, the pleasure of uh, becoming friends with and, and working on this book with, ha- Sorry, this said, is it, said it very son, well. Johnny's yeah. son. Yeah, okay. yeah Johnny's, uh, Johnny's son, John. Uh, as I said, it would have been nice if they could have just named somebody Pete. Uh, but uh, well, and I, so I didn't mean to divert for a second. But this actually is interesting because I, I even I have been confused in all of this because having been a fan or at least intrigued in the World Football League and and certainly knowing the USFL story and stuff a little less on the WHA side, uh, the Bassett name keeps coming up. And and it, when I have looked back over time, I've often confused Johnny F, the son mm-hmm. of John the Senior. Yeah. Uh, multiple times, and I got to think it's even harder for you with now the uh, subsequent son of Johnny F. Yeah. <laughs> at times, at times. Uh, but he, but he had a great line about that, about his father wanting to go off on his own. Is that when, when you grow up, when your father is a famous and powerful person, you grow up, you respect your father, you love the father, you appreciate all of the privilege you have been given and the opportunities you have that so many others don't. But you also maybe have a deeper burning desire to differentiate yourself because the minute you say your name is John Bassett, people are going to have an impression about you, whether it's fair or not. And what you really want to do is say that, no, I'm I'm a different John Bassett. I'm my own John Bassett. Please do not confuse me with my father. And so that I think that also had a lot to do with why he was willing to just sell out. You know, he went to his father and said, you know, I know that you're expecting me to take over the, uh, the family business uh, when you retire, but that's not what I want to do. I, I want to spend the rest of my life, um, making movies and running a sports franchise. And his dad um, tries to talk him out of it briefly, but just realizes, you know what, that's, that's what he's going to do. We're going to let him sell out and he's going to go and he's going to make it on his own. So he, he sells, he liquidates all of his assets in the family uh, company and he uses some of that money as well as other money that he raises from friends and family members and, he buys the Ottawa Nationals of the New World Hockey Association, moves them to Toronto, calls them the Toros, and then does something audacious. He he tries to compete head-to-head with the Toronto Maple Leafs, um, which I think, you know, as, as a fan of sports, you realize that's a pretty bold move. All right, before we go there further on that, let, let's, let's set the table. Of all things that you could choose to strike out on your own and differentiate yourself in the entertainment and or sports world. Why for God's sakes. And I'm sure a lot of this is this hindsight. And mm-hmm. we've talked to Dennis Murphy, right? We, we we've known some of the, why the world hockey association of all things, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, and, and again, again, this is sort of through the lens of, 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 of history and stuff, but you know, Dennis, God bless him. He's 95 years old now. still, mm-hmm. still relatively sharp as a tack. 
Yeah, I, I enjoyed that interview. I oh, did well, hear that. Thank you. I, there's so much more that we still want to do. I, I don't know if he's got enough energy to do them, but but I, the WHA, right? I want to call it House of Cards, but mm-hmm. you probably heard in that interview and in, in our subsequent or previous one with the ABA uh, for him. He, he was about selling franchises first and everything else later. And yeah. I, okay, why the WHA versus, say, expansion NHL franchise, for example, or, or something else, maybe the NBA? In, in in Canada, that would be ahead of the curve. Why do you think the WHA, do you think? Because it was easy to get into? Well, I mean, I do think there was a, there was a practical and a romantic. Uh, I, I always like to think of Johnny F. Bassett as a practical romantic. The practical reason is that to purchase the Ottawa Nationals, Bassett and his consortium had to pay $1.5 million dollars. At this time, the NHL is charging $6 million for expansion fees. So it was a lot cheaper for him to go into the WHA. I'm sorry. And to put this in context, right, This he, he was not part of the original Ottawa Nationals team. He bought the team after they were floundering after that first year. Is that right? That is correct. And and I'm afraid I've never I've never heard these names pronounced out loud. So I apologize to these men or their families. Uh, Doug Michael and Nick Turbovich were the original owners in Ottawa, and they just ran into problems. Ottawa had a brand new arena. Um, it was an ancestral home of hockey. There had once been a very powerful team called the Ottawa Senators in the NHL, and so everybody thought this would be a slam dunk, uh, but. The team barely drew fans, and they actually ended up not being able to pay their rent. And so when the Ottawa Nationals, as dysfunctional as they were, qualified for the WHA playoffs, they actually had to play their home playoff games at Maple Leaf Garden in Toronto. And so that's, I think, where you know Bassett was watching those games and kind of got turned on by it. Uh, and the other aspect is, you know, the romantic aspect is that he loved Toronto. He was a proud Torontonian. He really, really loved his home city, which is something I can respect. Um, he wanted to bring something exciting and fresh to his town because at this time, the, the Maple Leafs were just in the beginning of this almost 50 year run, more than 50 year run now of dare I say, irrelevance in hockey. Uh, Harold Ballard, who was a cutthroat businessman, kind of comes straight out of central casting. Um, If you were trying to recast Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life, you may have cast Harold Ballard in that role. Um, He's letting star players leave left and right because of contract disputes. He's not putting a lot of money into the team and the Maple Leafs are just becoming dull and Bassett, like a lot of fans is growing frustrated. And he thinks Toronto deserves a better form of hockey and he's dedicated to bringing it to them. So you've got, you've got those two, uh, those two dualities in Bassett, that practical romantic that I spoke of earlier. Okay. So the table is set though, but there's, there's uh some friction there between arenas and I, I guess it comes back to the question of why Toronto, because there's also another angle to this, right? There yeah, is I, the, the small little issue of, of John, the, the senior 
mm-hmm. uh, being either interested, part of sort of the Toronto sports scene and mix and the Maple Leafs sort of squarely in the middle of all that. So it almost feels like there's a bit of uh, Johnny kind of wanting to challenge. Maybe it's a sort of a subtle jab at, at dad. Well, n- not really a subtle jab at dad. By this time, uh, and I'm sorry, I, I apologize to all of your listeners who are right now furiously scribbling down, which John does he mean? Does he mean this John or that John? I feel like there's like a, a beautiful mind situation going on. But uh, Well, why don't we say Johnny for the the, uh, the protagonist here and John, <laughs> I'll say John Sr. just to, so there's no confusion. Okay. John Sr. by the uh, end of the 60s is out of the Maple Leafs. Um, Harold Ballard and Con Smythe ran afoul of the Canadian equivalent of the IRS. Um, there was also some shady dealing where it looks as though uh, Harold Ballard was actually embezzling money from Maple Leaf Gardens. And I do not remember if he actually had to serve prison time, but he was found guilty of the embezzlement. But they were still able to retain a lot of influence over the board. And when all of the legal ramifications are done and the punishment is, is over Smythe and Ballard engage in a proxy war and actually get control of enough shares to force the elder Bassett out of the Maple Leafs. So he's, he's not part of the, the Maple Leafs at the time that Johnny Bassett, um, goes into the Toros. And I did ask the family if you, if they thought that uh, the reason Johnny wanted to have a team in Toronto was to avenge his father. And they pretty much said, no, <laughs> you know, it, it probably would have been nice. He probably, that would have probably been a nice side benefit, but that was not the overriding uh, reason. It was more a case of, he just wanted to operate a team in the city that he, that he loved. When we, when we come back and talk later about the world football league, that will be an interesting dynamic between him and his father. Okay. So, but so Ballard though, does have a long memory, right? Because the Bassett Correct. name uh, was a bit consterning uh, before his, uh, his issues and the Toronto Maple Leaf situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I guess Johnny's arrival as a direct threat slash challenge mm-hmm. uh, to not only the Maple Leafs, but the NHL in the form of the Toros and the WHA uh, was not lost on him and played out, I guess, in, in shall we say, gumming up the works for uh, Johnny to have the Toros play uh, either in Maple Leaf Gardens or the Coliseum, which was then newly renovated. Uh, Varsity Arena was in the mixture. It seems like it was a catch-as-catch-can to get this team domiciled. Yeah, and this is another example of where Bassett is always just a few years ahead. The great North American stadium building craze had not quite happened yet. Um, fans of American sports, um, especially football and baseball, know that the, in the 70s and early 80s, there seemed to be new stadiums popping up all over the place. But that, that had not quite occurred in Toronto at this time. And so when Bassett... Uh, takes possession of the Toronto Toros. Um, he's looking for a place to play. And this is where a little bit of his naivety comes in. He, he thought that the city of Toronto would want to work with him and help him to get a new arena for his team. And he's willing to work with them on the CNE Coliseum, 
um, but they're not really willing to work on him. And my one regret is I never really had a chance to do a lot of digging into government documents to figure out exactly why. My guess is just they felt that public money for a private individual stadium was something they didn't want to get into. Um, he opens instead at Varsity Arena, which is the University of Toronto's hockey arena. It seats roughly 4,000. Um, and they sell out a lot of games during their first season, but they're, they're not able to really generate any profit playing in an arena so small. And so Harold Ballard offers Bassett the opportunity to play at Maple Leaf Garden in the team's second season. And a lot of people were stunned by this. I'm sure no doubt Bassett was as well. And when the Toronto newspapers asked Ballard, why are you allowing your chief rival to come in and play at Maple Leaf Gardens? He said two things. He said, simply, the arena must pay for itself. And so they're just another tenant like anybody else. And number two, I don't really view him as a threat because no matter how well his team does, he won't last very long because he can't just play intra-squad scrimmages because he was pointing out that teams like Chicago and Los Angeles and uh, the New York teams, the Philadelphia team and the WHA were all struggling to attract attendance. And so his view was, yeah, Bassett may be a problem, but the WHA isn't really a problem. It will go away in a few years and we'll be fine. And so he charges an exorbitant amount of money for Bassett to play and Bassett realizing that there is no other suitable ice in Toronto for a professional hockey team decides to just keep on attempting to make it work. And what's ironic is that that's the only thing that really keeps the Toros from possibly existing to this day was lack of an arena of their own because he was getting a good 10 to 12,000 fans per home game. You know, there'd be somewhere he'd only get 5,000, but then if Bobby Hall or Gordy Howe came to town, suddenly there were 18,000 at Maple Leaf Gardens. So attendance and interest in his team was never the problem. It was the amount of money he had to pay uh, to have home ice that finally drove him to give up and move to Birmingham, which I know we'll, we'll probably cover here in a few minutes. Yeah, interesting. And, and there's also a little bit of uh, of pilfering, right? Uh, Frank Mihalovich, uh, mm-hmm. a star from the Summit Series in 72, a previous conversation we've had. Uh, Paul Henderson. Uh, uh, Wayne you know, Dillon of yeah. the uh, Marlies. Um, Bassett was uh, once Colleen Howe, you know, Mark and Marty's mom, figured out that loophole that allowed the WHA to sign the Canadian juniors. Bassett just plowed right through that hole and did that for the rest of his time. Um, you know, signing people like Wayne Dillon, who was a Toronto Marlboro, which was a, a very popular junior hockey team. You know, people in Toronto were just salivating over Wayne Dillon, waiting for him to eventually put on a maple leaf sweater. And here comes Johnny Bassett signing him for the Toros. Um, so, you know, he, he did a lot um, and had some very exciting teams. He helped Vaclav Nedimonsky, um and Richard Farda. Uh, defect from Czechoslovakia and bring that European style to the Toros. And you said they have national heroes like Mihalovic and Henderson on their roster. So 
you know, the Toros may not have been the most uh, well-rounded team, but they were arguably one of the most exciting teams that the WHA ever put together. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned Ballard's sort of disdain for the WHA. It also speaks to <clears throat> a theme that we've heard not only about the, the World Hockey Association specifically, but but more broadly with with a bunch of challenger leagues, especially in the the, the later decades or the more modern eras, um, is sort of this uh, uh, dual headed desire slash conflict, I guess, to mm-hmm. uh, domicile teams in new markets, right? Uh, that uh, predecessor or uh, bigger league uh, has not been in or has been slow to sort of expand to, you know, new fertile markets, if you will. Uh, but also at the same time, and maybe counterintuitively, uh, trying to directly root themselves in uh, major league cities, uh, you know, uh, maybe wanting to avoid sort of a head-to-head, but but recognizing they need to be in a New York, a Los Angeles, a, a Chicago, a Toronto in the case of hockey, uh, to sort of legitimize themselves as being quote-unquote major league. It seems to me, and again, hindsight, very clear, that it's very hard to serve two masters, I guess, on that front, right? One sort of pioneering in new markets, yet at the same time, trying to compete directly with, I don't know, in many cases like Toronto's decades old uh, teams that are, are, are legacy and have many generations of fans. Yeah. And that is true to a point. I, I you know, I, I do concede that uh, unless acted on by an outside force, entrenched leagues rarely will innovate or expand on their own. So uh, there's always historically been a need uh, for an upstart to come along and say, you know what? Denver deserves a football team or, you know what? Kansas city really should have a baseball team. Um, but they also need to establish teams in major media markets. The one thing that Bassett had going for him. And the one reason why I do think Toronto was different um, than a lot of these other franchises that attempted to go head to head with something that was entrenched was that to this day, I still believe that Toronto could support two hockey teams. And that was something Bassett also truly believed. He believed that if you would just help me to get my own arena, we will be self-sustaining. We are the New York of Canada. New York has two football, two baseball, two hockey, two basketball. They support them. LA has multiple teams in the same sport. So why not Toronto? Why cannot Toronto, which is just hockey mad, support two professional hockey teams? Um, to, to his dying day, he always believed that that could have happened um, if he was just able to get um, a suitable arena that he could call his own. Um, I don't know that that will ever happen. I don't know why the Maple Leafs would ever want an NHL expansion team to come in and compete with them. But I, I still believe with the the population of Toronto and their passion for that sport. You you could have a New York Jets, New York Giants type situation in Toronto with hockey. Interesting. As an ignorant American, uh, that's uh, it's a that's an angle that I never really considered before. I would imagine Montreal perhaps could could qualify for for similar, uh, although there's some obviously some cultural uh, mm-hmm. differences there. Oh, but, all right, so let let's. All right, so it's it's becoming untenable to stay in Toronto. It's uh, mm-hmm. so how and why Birmingham of all places? 
because Birmingham gave him something Toronto could not, and that was an arena of his own. Um, Birmingham had a brand new 17,000-seat arena, and Frank Falkenberg and other uh, civic leaders in Birmingham convinced him that, you know what, you, you can sell hockey down here. It will work. Uh, Birmingham has supported high-level minor league baseball for years. Um, we had the, the American slash Vulcans of the World Football League, and we supported them. We are tired of being second to Atlanta in everything. You know, Atlanta's got the Falcons, the Braves, the Hawks, and the Flames. You know, we, we want professional sports. We want to prove that we are still one of the dominant cities in the Deep South. And so they offer a very enticing financial package, you know, giving him, you know, a lot of cuts on concessions and parking and a sweetheart deal as far as leasing uh, the arena. And so he moves to Birmingham and he rechristens his team, the Birmingham Bulls. And his son says the reason why they named it the Bulls was not only so that they could uh, keep the alliteration of the name, but also that they did not have to spend money on new jerseys. You know, they could just use the same jersey, Toro, Bull. It was the same thing as far as they were concerned. Um, and so they spend that first year or so in Birmingham, and you know, they have a very creative marketing strategy. Uh, Johnny Bassett and his uh, public relations director, Peter McCaskill, uh, start teaching classes at the University of Alabama, Birmingham on rules of hockey. And they slowly get people to understand the lingo. And at first they're, they're concerned because when the season opens in October, they're not drawing very well. And in November, they're not drawing very well. But then in December, attendance starts to take off and they figure out what it is. The University of Alabama Crimson Tide football season is over. And the fans in Birmingham truly do want sports year round. It's just that they want Alabama football first and foremost. Then they'll come and they'll watch the Bulls play. And so over the next three years, Bassett is proving that hockey is truly an American national sport. It can sell in all four corners of the uh, of the nation. The NHL is not able to sell hockey in Atlanta. The Flames eventually moved to Calgary, and I believe it was 1980. Uh, but Birmingham, the turnstiles in Birmingham, are continuing to spin around. And so uh, I would argue that you know, the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Carolina Hurricanes and the uh, uh, Dallas Stars, they, they owe a debt of gratitude uh, to Bassett. Uh, the Nashville Predators, that was the other one I couldn't remember. They owe a debt of uh, gratitude to Bassett for proving that the Deep South really could be a hockey hotbed. You just had to give them a chance and aggressively market and understand what your fan base was all about. Let me talk to you about DraftKings. Hey, you know, the big college hoops tournament's finally here. The brackets have been set and the teams are ready to hit the court. And DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy, is celebrating with their largest free college basketball survivor pool ever. How large? 
Well, how about a million dollars large in total prizes all up for grabs? And if that's not enough, check this out. When you enter the free DraftKings $1 million survivor pool, you could get a shot at winning $10,000 for every upset through the first two rounds of the tournament. It's easy to play. Just pick one team per day. And if they win, you survive and advance to the next round. Last person standing is the winner. Remember, you can only pick a team once for the entire tournament, so choose wisely. DraftKings is a safe and secure app, and you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. So what are you waiting for? Get in on all this week's action. Download the DraftKings app now, enter code GOODSEATS during sign-up, and enter the free $1 million survivor pool. Again, use code GOODSEATS to enter the DraftKings free $1 million survivor pool. Eligibility restrictions and terms and conditions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. And now back to our conversation. Was the WFL's uh, launch, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, 74 and then reconstituted in 70 or partially 75. Yeah. Uh, was, was that also uh, somehow a, a tangential revelation of some sort about Birmingham as a market, given that Birmingham was uh, by all accounts, uh, probably the strongest or longest lasting times to market in the WFL that he was involved in. Well, absolutely. Because I think Memphis, Birmingham were that those were intense rivals. Uh, Birmingham um, was considered one of the best run WFL teams. And while they did eventually miss some payrolls, um, they were uh, treated by or they were viewed by a lot of players and people in the WFL as being of NFL quality, both in how their operation was run and their fan base. And the same was true in Memphis with the Southmen. And Memphis and Birmingham are not that far apart, so they were natural geographic rivals. So Bassett was intimately familiar with the fan base of, uh, of Birmingham. So that, that also played a role in his decision to, uh, to relocate there. Very interesting. Uh, it's also where a young Eli Gold uh, yes. got his uh, first start. We, we've tried to reach out to Eli. He, he declined. I, I'm not sure maybe he wants to remember that first year of his professional broadcasting life from moving from Brooklyn down to the South, uh, down to, uh, into Alabama, and then obviously becoming years and years down the road, a NASCAR and mm-hmm. University of Alabama football uh, broadcasting legend. But um, they, they also did get kind of a reputation, the Bulls, uh, for being uh, kind of like the Phil- Philadelphia Flyers South, if you will, a, yeah. sort of a hard-nosed, uh, pugnacious, kind of uh, uh, quick uh, quick on the draw, so to speak, to kind of fight their way through. And uh, I, not, not tremendously successful in the win-loss column, but mm-hmm. – they uh, they seem like they were entertaining and, and, and very physical, no? Yeah, that they were kind of a real-life slap shot um, in more ways than one. Like I said, the, the, their first year, they, they were feeling their way, and they felt that ju- something was just off. And so uh, Bassett and his executive committee, including Gil Laguerre and Peter McCaskill, sat down and tried to figure out, okay, what is it we're missing? We're, we're just not connecting. And McCaskill said, these people are football fans. You know, we, we actually, when we're sitting in the stands, this is the first time I've ever been to a hockey game where people are chanting defense, defense, defense. That, that's not something that they were used to at hockey games. And so 
Bassett and McCaskill determined that what we have to do is basically be the Alabama Crimson Tide on ice skates. So we're, you know, they want physicality. They want defense. They want intimidation. That's what we're going to give them. And the other thing that was working against them a little bit was that um, people like Mahalovich and Nedimansky, while amazing hockey players, they have exotic sounding names and they're from Canada and from Czechoslovakia. So the Alabamians aren't really relating to them. And so there was an emphasis on getting uh, some surnames that Alabamians could relate to. And if not, at least bringing in a style of play that the Alabamians could relate to. And this was the birth of what was known as the Birmingham bullies where they brought in uh, Steve Durbano and they brought in uh, one of, you know, they brought in Hanson. One of the Hanson brothers from the movie uh, was actually signed to play for um, the bulls. And so it was an entire goon squad and uh, hockey fans know that you usually have one goon, uh, or enforcer on the ice at a time to protect your superstar. Well, the Bulls would put an entire rotation out there. Um, that was nothing but goons. You know, they weren't trying to score sometimes. They were just looking to uh, hit people. And it led to one of the more infamous games on uh, Thanksgiving night. The Cincinnati Stingers came to play Birmingham and the Thanksgiving weekend was always a big one for Bassett. He always wanted a home game on Thanksgiving Day because the Iron Bowl was the Saturday after Thanksgiving Day. And he knew that people from Mobile to Andalusia would be coming in uh, to Birmingham to Legion Field to watch the Auburn and Alabama game. And so he wanted to have a big spectacle on Thanksgiving weekend. And so the opening uh, the opening face-off, there's nothing but enforcers on the ice for the Bulls, and they immediately drop their gloves and just start punching everybody they see in a Cincinnati uniform, and there's ejections and there's penalties, but they have so unnerved Cincinnati that I believe the final score of that game was Birmingham 12, Cincinnati 2, and it was referred to the next day in the papers as the Thanksgiving Day Massacre. And there's a push in Alabama to have Johnny Bassett enshrined in the Alabama Sports Hall of Fame. And invariably, when you read the comments on social media about that drive, they're still referring to the Thanksgiving Day Massacre all these decades later. That didn't last long, though. They kind of try to sh- shift gears. Uh, and this is obviously mm-hmm. near the end of the year uh, into something called the Baby Bulls, which mm-hmm. be, uh, had intrigue for, uh, which was interesting for a number of different reasons. In particular, a guy who never wound up playing for the Bulls, but was very much in the eye of, of Bassett to to come to town. Want to talk about that for a second? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, the uh, to, first off, the the Baby Bulls come about because there's a lot of merger talks going on. You know, despite how uh, despite Harold Ballard's Ballard's uh, contention to the opposite. The WHA is a major thorn in the NHL, and there are several attempts to try and merge the two leagues together, and Bassett's team is always being left out. 
partly because of Harold Ballard and also just partly because uh, Bassett's signing of junior hockey players is driving up the salaries throughout the NHL. So there's a lot of ill will uh, towards Bassett. And so realizing that he probably will not be invited into the final merger, he continues to sign up as many valuable uh, junior players as he can, realizing that if I don't make the final cut in the merger, they're going to have to pay me in order to get negotiating rights to these players. Now, one player he does not want to sign but wants in the WHA is a young man by the name of Wayne Gretzky. And the reason why he does not want Gretzky on the Bulls is because he is afraid that he will get Gretzky killed because there's a lot of revenge among the WHA against the Bulls for the bully treatment. (laughs) So he acts as a liaison between Gretzky and Gretzky's father and Nelson Scalbania of the Indianapolis Racers. And he's able to midwife um, Gretzky into the WHA because the NHL still will not allow junior players to sign uh, with that league. You know, they, they hold on to that rule for quite some time. So Gretzky, the biggest name in hockey, doesn't want to go to college. He doesn't want to play for the Canadian juniors because he's afraid of getting hurt uh, before he can really cash in. So he agrees to sign with the Indianapolis racers with, uh, with Bassett's full blessing. And then eventually ends up with Edmonton when Indianapolis collapses during that final year of the WHA. And when I interviewed Wayne Gretzky, which by the way, was an honor of life. um, It was really interesting to, to hear how he was just so in awe of uh, Johnny Bassett and appreciative of how he was helping get him into professional hockey and making sure he was set up in a solid situation with a decent owner um, in Scalbania and avoiding the uh, pitfalls of uh, perhaps being on a team that was going to be targeted for a lot of physical recrimination. Um, and that was what a lot of the junior players said. That's uh, why I, that's why I called one of my chapters in the book, the emancipation of the Canadian juniors was this gave the players a level of freedom they had never had before. And it gave them their first introduction to big time hockey, but in a much friendlier environment than what they were used to. And one of my favorite stories that Gretzky and also Steve Earhart reiterate is that at one time when uh, Bassett was in Oklahoma, just a, on a business trip, and he went to see a minor league hockey game, which I think at that time would have been the 66ers uh, in the Tulsa area. All of the players on the bench recognized Bassett in the stands, and they came over and they started banging on the, the glass as a tribute to him you know, thanking him for helping them get into hockey and helping them uh, raise their standard of living. So um, I I do feel like that there are times where I'm talking around because there's so many fascinating stories that just come popping into my head um, that, you know, people, you know, Bassett is just a beloved figure um, in hockey, except maybe in NHL headquarters. That's interesting. And, and so it was sort of one of the uh, many sort of unsung, I guess, heroes of, of the, you know, long gone WHA, which a lot of people kind of don't 
you either want to resurrect or certainly the NHL doesn't want to even remember. Uh, and that's, yeah. that speaks volumes, but, but it also is expressed in other places, right? So, so maybe we can use this opportunity to kind of now take a, a, a half step back because around the same time, or at least a few years, well, sorry, not around I, the Toros years, certainly mm-hmm. um, was this other dalliance known as the world football league. Right. And <laughs> I, I guess it would seem to me that that fighting head to head against the juggernaut that is uh, at the time was the Maple Leafs and the NHL would have been enough to keep a guy busy and then some. Mm-hmm. But but how does this WFL thing come about? Because I'm guessing that this is a Toronto franchise playing professional football of the NFL variety or mm-hmm. the NFL American variety, shall we say, versus Canadian. Uh, is it, there seems to be like an element of challenge and Toronto was a market for that too. I guess the question then comes again is why the hell the World Football League versus say trying to do something in the CFL or maybe trying to make your mark uh, with the uh, with the ownership of the NFL to to maybe think uh, take a crack at Canada. Why this? <laughs> was it Dennis Murphy again? Perhaps. Well, actually, I think it was more Gary Davidson, or and, the uh, or the or the relationship with Gary Davidson and all that mix, right? It's like, yeah. okay, well, if I sell, if we're doing the House of Cards with the WHA, hey, you're gonna love these deck of cards over here. I don't know. Yeah. Well, my favorite Bassett quote about the WFL is: if you want to look at the WFL as a tragedy, it is a hell of a story, and if you want to look at the WFL as a comedy, it is still a hell of a story. Um, he's operating the, the Toros and he's running a relatively successful hockey operation, you know, despite not having his own arena, he, he's showing that he has the, uh, fiscal and mental, um, reserves necessary, uh, to handle this endeavor. And Gary Davidson has this idea, you know, the W the NFL has already announced where it's, expanding to in states that they really have no uh, plans to expand beyond 28 teams. And just like Lamar Hunt uh, back in the late 50s, Gary Davidson realizes, well, there's a lot of cities that want to play professional football. They would love to have professional football. I don't think the market is saturated. And he also has this just off the wall idea of I want football teams, not just in the United States, but in Mexico. And, you know, we'll put one in Osaka. We'll put one in Sydney and London and Paris. We'll have a true world football league. Um, Bassett realizing there's really no opportunity in the NFL to have a team of his own is intrigued. And once again, loving Toronto, he feels, well, if this is going to be a world football league, let me be your first international location. I will place a team in Toronto. Um, and we'll call it the Toronto Northmen, which had a really cool polar bear logo. If anybody ever wants to look that up online. Um, and he's going to play at exhibition stadium right on the lakefront with the full blessing of his father, who happens to be one of the co-owners of the Toronto Argonauts of the CFL. So his father and he actually have a a good relationship about this. You know, his father agrees with him that, you know, Canada should be able to support 
both types of football. Uh, but the CFL does not agree with that assessment. And they decide to petition the Pierre Trudeau administration for protection. Uh, because this is also a time where a term that I was unfamiliar with, uh, Canadian anti-Americanism, was really growing uh, throughout the provinces in the 1970s. You know, our, our pop cultural exports were flying over the 48th parallel and landing all throughout the nation. And there's a, a strong contingent of Canadians who are getting very upset that you know, Canadian children are growing up watching American television, American films, listening to American music, and they're equating our culture with their culture, and they're really bothered by that. It's bad enough you guys are playing hockey in the United States, but you want to come up here and now change our style of football? I don't think so. And so the CFL and the Trudeau administration start to work against this encroachment of American style football uh, happening in Toronto. And uh, it's called the uh, Canadian Football Protection Act. I believe it was CF 22, where they were actually going to outlaw American style football from being played in Canada. And so uh, what's interesting is that this law is being bandied about in Ottawa, just as, Johnny Bassett stages one of the greatest coups in football history. And I think I'm, I think you know what I'm about to lead into here. Go for it. The Miami Dolphins have won back-to-back Super Bowl championships. They've gone uh, two complete seasons with only two losses. And their three best players on offense, arguably, are Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, and Paul Warfield. And all three of their contracts expire um, or are set to expire at the conclusion of the 1973 season. And they all are represented by the same agent, Ed Keating. And like any good agent, when Keating realizes that there's a new football league coming, he decides just to kind of use it as a negotiating ploy to tell Joe Robbie that, you know what, we're, we're going to talk to the WFL. We're going to see what kind of contracts they can offer. And Bassett learns of this, and through an intermediary, he invites Keating, along with Zonka, Kick, and Warfield, to Toronto to enter into negotiations. And he puts them up in a presidential suite at the Royal York Hotel, and buys them all a suit of clothes and tells them to go out and have a a good time on the town while your agent and I sit down and discuss this. And the agent lays out this just bizarre list of demands. And, you know, I want each player to get roughly a million dollars. They should all have their housing paid for. They should all get a luxury car to use during the season. Just, a lot of things we take for granted now in player compensation, but in 1974 was completely off the charts. And Bassett does something that Keating can't believe. He just says, yes, doesn't matter how ludicrous the, the demand is. Bassett says, yeah, sure. I'll give you that. 
because I don't think you're serious. I don't think you really want to sign with me. I think you're just using me to get at Joe Robbie. So I'm going to tell your clients that I'm agreeing to every single one of their demands and see what you do. And Keating is caught off guard by this because he did not expect these outrageous demands to be accepted. And so he reports back to Zonka Kick and Warfield, this man is, is saying yes to everything you guys want. What do you want me to do? It's like, oh, we got to call Joe Robbie immediately. So Keating calls Joe Robbie and tells him that, you know, the WFL team in Toronto is willing to pay your players a million dollars a piece and provide them with the condo and luxury cars. And Robbie just loses it and says, you, what, what are you crazy? I can't match that. And so they sign with Bassett's team. And I just, I always found that, that I love that, that, that was his negotiating strategy was just to say Yes. Um, and before you know it, the, the three of them are signing their contracts on April Fool's Day, um, which is unfortunate timing. But that, you know, they signed these contracts on April 1st of 1974, stating that once they play out their option with the Dolphins, they will join the Toronto Northmen and start playing in 1975. Um, and that pretty much ends the Dolphins uh, dynasty. Um, so I apologize to all of my family members who grew up Dolphin fans that I am fascinated by the man that ruined their dynasty in the early 1970s. But um, it was just a shocking moment in the NFL. But it also is is one of one of the sort of initial starting guns of, again, sort of right out of the playbook of the ABA and certainly the WHA is trying to get uh, marketable, big name talent name or two yep. to get the headlines and, and create some instant credibility. Um, yeah. How much of that is, is uh, Bassett's own moxie and how much of that is sort of the WFL quote unquote brain trust trying to kind of rip a, a page from the WHA playbook with, you know, Gordy Howe et al. Yeah. Well, the thing with Gordy Howe, well, Bobby. I don't know if it was with Gordy Howe, but I think it was with Bobby, Bobby Hall, Hall. That, yeah, that, that million dollar contract, Bobby Hall side, uh, I think all of the owners in the WHA were assessed a bit of money. So I don't, I don't think Winnipeg paid all of his $1 million. I think all of the teams kind of kicked in a little bit. Um, whereas Bassett was on the hook for this uh, by himself. And this is once again, a little bit of naivete on Bassett's part was um, he started a spending war that his own league could not sustain. He was able to sustain it. But his contemporaries start also handing out outlandish money. You know, uh, you know, the Birmingham Americans signed Kenny Stabler to an outrageous sum. Um, I think Ted Qualick of the 49ers, who was an all-pro tight end, um, signed to an outrageous sum. Um, I mean, Bassett wanted what he called his Sonny Werblin moment. You know, Sonny Werblin of the Jets knew that when he signed Joe Namath, he wasn't just signing a great quarterback, he was signing the face of the American Football League. And and that's what Bassett felt he was doing with the three Miami Dolphins. He wasn't paying them just to be football players. He was paying them to be the public faces of this entire league and franchise. Uh, so that played um, a major role in it. And, you know, all leagues do have to do that. You know, we'll get to the USFL eventually with Herschel Walker, 
you know, every, every league tries to get that one star to provide a sense of credibility and buzz. Um, sadly in Bassett's case, uh, first off the threat of being legislated out of his nation, uh, forces him to relocate to Memphis, uh, where they go from the Northmen to the Southmen. Um, and instead of a polar bear, they have a grizzly bear. Yeah, and why Memphis? Um, once again, Memphis offered him a very nice stadium. Memphis fell short in the expansion derby. You know, they were a finalist, but uh, the NFL decides to expand to Tampa and Seattle, respectively. Uh, so Memphis has a recently expanded stadium um, and a ticket base and a ticket list that is readily available for Bassett to procure you know, because they were selling season tickets as a way to try and get the NFL to come to Memphis. So, you know, Bassett knows that there's money. There's, there's a, a dedicated ticket base uh, down there that he can just jump into. So Memphis is a, a logical place for him, for him to relocate the South men. Um, and they have a very successful season. I believe they finished 17 and three, if you can believe a 20 game season, just ridiculous. But, uh, they, they finish with the best record in the WFL. But once again, the, the, the shooting war that Bassett starts as far as signing these big names is repeated by his fellow owners. And unfortunately, they don't have uh, the financial uh, depth that Bassett did. So, you know, a lot of these teams start to collapse as the season goes along. And there's also a lot of self-inflicted wounds you know, I've, I've heard your other interviews. So I know a lot of your listeners know about the Papergate scandal in Philadelphia uh, that hurt credibility, the lack of a, of a true national broadcasting contract with a major network um, was something that hurt. Um, but it was these commitments, these, these million dollar guaranteed signing bonuses uh, to NFL players that never even played it down in the league because the league collapsed so quickly. Um, that truly undercut it. Um, so I think, I think Bassett in the long run, if he had to do it over again, I think he was proud of his team, but he was able to have a very good season without Zonka kick and Warfield. Something tells me if he had to do it over again, maybe he doesn't sign that deal because he really did not truly get the bang for his buck because the league collapsed so quickly. Well, but, but also the league, uh, and I think this is lost on a lot of people who were, you know, were not, completists of the the WFL this was actually two different leagues right this the 1975 Mm -hmm. version I mean to Bassett's credit he was he was one of the only owners from the original 74 uh, venture shall we say that Mm -hmm. came back under the Hamleter plan and 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 sort of you know stuck with it uh, and frankly was uh, you know one of the only markets that really came back kind of intact Mm -hmm. versus complete overhaul right so this is a guy who still believed um, obviously 75 you know, didn't even sort of make it to the finish line. But but it, I, I guess if anything, uh, he proved that Memphis was a solid non-NFL and maybe NFL worthy market. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I think maybe even the, uh, the the three Miami guys sort of didn't, you know, I guess they kind of went begrudgingly knowing that the WFL was not what maybe they originally signed for the year before. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, I guess they uh, but I, I guess where I'm getting at is that at Memphis, uh, 
was it was it a football market in waiting professionally or or how much of it i guess was bassett and his teams uh doing to sort of till that fertile soil i think it was a little bit of both uh bassett was very imaginative the one thing i i've neglected to mention so far that's that's my error uh is just the uh the showman that Bassett was, he, he was very good at promotions. Uh, he believed that an audience member deserved more than just a game for their price of admission. And so in Toronto with the Toros, he had evil Knievel come out and try and, uh, play a little hockey. Uh, and people loved that. It got the Toros on wide world of sports in Memphis. Uh, one of his neighbors is Elvis Presley and Elvis Presley becomes a Memphis Southman season ticket holder and comes out and sings the national anthem at Southman games and sits in the box and watches games with Bassett. He is close friends with, uh, Gordon Lightfoot and Gordon Lightfoot comes out and does pre and post game concerts for Southman fans. So does Isaac Hayes. Uh, so he's. You know, so there, there is a lot going on in Memphis besides uh, just the football. So the fact that Memphis tried for another NFL expansion team in the 90s but was turned down, I think that soured Memphis on the NFL. Uh, so, I mean, they had one year where they hosted the Tennessee Titans uh, before the team relocated uh, to Nashville. So... Um, Memphis, at least in the seventies, uh, was all in on at least Bassett's style of football. All right. I, I, I want to round the curve and get back to his second bite of the football cherry, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. with the bandits where we kind of started off, but I want to take a quick, a quick detour into the cul-de-sac of world team tennis and the Toronto slash Buffalo team there. I know it's not something you talk about in your book, but there's world team tennis. Okay. And then, which is another <laughs> Dennis Murphy enterprise. You see how this, <laughs> this stuff comes together. Um, I'm guessing that if we go back in time, like the, the world, the world team tennis uh, effort uh, started in earnest in 75, that was its first season. Um, so I guess this is all interesting to know that here's a guy around that time, right? That's, knee deep in the WHA with a Toronto franchise uh, is circling uh, at least the beginnings and the idea of a world football league franchise in Toronto. And it would seem to me that hanging around the Dennis Murphy slash Gary Davidson crowd that hell, why not? I'll do a tennis thing too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll domicile that in, in Toronto as well. A couple of seconds on, on, on that. Cause I, you know, we could probably have a whole, separate half hour on that but yeah. toronto buffalo like it already sounds like it's stillborn right there when you're trying to play in two different cities uh in two different countries if you will well at, at the risk of making him sound like a dilettante um he, he really was when he when he decided he wanted to do something he went in full scale and what was funny was when he was raising money for the toros uh you know, for his consortium among his friends and family members, according to one of his closest friends, Peter Eby, um, they actually raised more money than they needed. And so Bassett said, well, how about we try and get into this world team tennis thing? 
Um, cause I love tennis. I don't know if you guys, re- <laughs> I don't know if you guys know this. I was a pretty good tennis player. I played in the Davis cup and you know, everybody, yes, of course. Yeah, he, was, he, was a tennis, he was a tennis guy by, uh, by heritage. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they did try it and they, they had a, they had a, a very, uh, big personality as coach, uh, Auker, the flying Dutchman, uh, was their coach. Um, and, uh, I believe Wendy Overton, who was one of the top 10 female players was their female star, you know, cause this was, uh, for those not familiar with world team tennis, they kind of played tennis as though it was a football game. You'd have a first half and a second half and you'd have, you know, a, a women's singles match, a men's singles match, a mixed doubles match. And, you know, however, all the points broke out would, would determine what team won. And they're just not that successful. They are one of the worst teams in the league. And it just never caught on in Toronto. Quite frankly, didn't catch on all that well in Buffalo. They were struggling to get people to come to the CNE uh, Coliseum or uh, to the Coliseum in Buffalo. So after one relatively bad year, uh, Bassett decides to pull the plug. He sells it to a couple that I... I think we're supposed to move it to Hartford, Connecticut. The team never uh, actually played. And, and while I don't want to insult anybody who's really into the world team tennis, because it was an amazing, uh, amazing success in a lot of places. And you had Billy Jean King affiliated with it, Lamar Hunt affiliated with it. Uh, given my page limitations uh, in this book, I just, I, I just, I didn't feel like I could really make it work. Uh, organically in the story because there was just too many other stories of the the World Football League, World Hockey League, USFL that I I wanted to put in. No, I, hey, tr- trust me, there's there's plenty of richness here. I, and I my correction is that 1974 was the first year of the World Team Tennis, mm-hmm. and that was the one and only year of the. But uh, it is absolutely a um, a nook and a cranny. Our, our pal Stephen Blush, who uh, just came out with a book about. Uh, four or five months ago about world team tennis, which is uh, it's a, it's a tremendously uh, gorgeous looking uh, coffee table esque uh, uh, book on, on, on that league. Uh, I'm sure that is a, 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 a cul-de-sac that we could uh, <laughs> go deeper into and stick around and, and skateboard our way through. Um, but it does, it does speak to, I think uh, a guy who is a, for lack of a better term, a budding, uh, a challenger league sports entrepreneur, right? And mm-hmm. it speaks to, I think, his um, uh, not only his showmanship, but his, uh, I guess, desire to make his own mark in sports and not sort of in a uh, classic traditionalist, uh, you know, establishment kind of kind of manner. And look, this is also a reflection, I think, of the time. And we, we mentioned some of the guys who were involved, right? The Gary Davidsons and the the Dennis Murphys. I mean, the the, the chutzpah for these guys, right? I mean, I you know we could history didn't treat them and their 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 stuff all that well per se, at least financially. Yeah. But look, this was an era, the seventies in particular, of lots of different opportunities and challenges and ideas and entrepreneurialism. And uh, I think it seems like um, he's definitely one of those guys. Yeah. Sort of. And and I think the other thing that we have to remember, and you know, I try to always be a positive person, but also when, you know, when you go back and you watch uh, some 1970s baseball, 1970s football, 1970s basketball, it's quite boring. Um, you know, the AFL had made football pretty exciting in the sixties, but then the AFL went away 
And suddenly the NFL was back to being three yards in a cloud of dust all the time. And the NBA, you know, they don't have the three point line. You know, the W, the ABA comes up with, with a lot of this fun stuff, you know, so, you know, it's uh, the NHL is a lot of clutch and grab, clutch and grab, neutral zone, the broad street bullies. WHA is more European. It's, it's less about physicality and more about finesse and speed. So, you know, I, I think that's another important aspect of this is not only the, uh, the financial opportunities, but sports, you know, high level professional sports in the mid seventies, just is not that, that exciting. Uh, and I think that was the other thing that a lot of the people you mentioned were also trying to go after. Okay, so let's uh, uh, mix metaphors and round third base here and, and sort of <laughs> um, back back to Tampa. Um, yeah. But 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 before we do that, we can't sort of leave uh, Memphis uh, uh, completely cleanly because uh, the, the 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 there there's some entanglement there in Memphis mm-hmm. that is still lingering in the early '80s. You know, six years or so after the collapse of of the WFL that. Uh, I don't know, at least maybe it still has a bad taste in his mouth. Uh, I guess when he's presented with or intrigued with the flight of fancy that was the fledgling idea of the United States Football League, uh, maybe a little bit of a setup for for that, because it doesn't seem like his experiences in Memphis, while quote unquote successful, obviously didn't bear fruit, certainly with either the WFL or as, a, as an entree into the NFL. Why and how is the USFL now potentially an idea for him to pursue? I, I would imagine he would be soured on it, maybe football. Well, he is a little bit, but you know, he he has the WHA. He's he's with the Bulls until 1979, um, and this is an important thing to remember: is you know we're we're talking about his financial wherewithal. He he pretty much exhausts his nest egg. Uh, the one thing that I will always give Bassett credit for is his probity. He, he doesn't walk away. If he made a financial commitment, he makes sure everybody is paid. Uh, Larry Zonka and Paul Warfield. I was, I was sadly not able to talk to Mr. Kick before he passed away, but Zonka and Warfield wanted it mentioned plainly that they got all the money they were owed. You know, they, you know, Bassett honored the contract and Zonka said that even Don Shuler was shocked. He's like, the guy paid you? It's like, yeah, he paid, you know, he, he paid me. He honored his commitment. Uh, and so by the time the WHA goes away, he's pretty much broken even. He takes all the settlement money for not being involved in the merger. And he's able to settle all of his WHA and WFL related debts but not have a whole lot left over. That's why he goes into condominium uh, development in Longboat Key, and he starts to build his his fortune back up through real estate development. And he's really not all that interested in sports, not so much because of a bad taste, but because his health was at risk for a while. He, he had a very serious form of skin cancer. He had uh, quite a few... Uh, incisions to remove some of his lymph nodes, and he has some very unsightly scars on his back. Uh, his daughter, Carling, uh, has the tennis gene in the family. His uh, daughter, Carling, 
becomes a very successful professional tennis player. She's one of the earliest graduates of the Voluntary Tennis Academy, which is now the IMG Academy. Um, and so he is quite content to build condos, recuperate his health, and be a tennis dad following his daughter all over the globe as she plays in the Australian Open or Wimbledon or at Roland Garros. So he's, he's pretty content. Um, when David Dixon comes along and has the idea for the United States Football League, one of the first people he wants to contact is John Bassett. Bassett isn't really that interested at first and, and tells Dixon point blank, I think you're a nut for wanting to establish another one of these leagues. Have you seen what happened to the WFL? And Dixon lays out what's known as the Dixon plan. He says, no, 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 John, you don't understand. Every team's going to have a strict salary cap and every team is going to have to commit a million and a half dollar line of credit. So that if any team is struggling that um, we will be able to tap into that money to help get a team through the season. We're going to very carefully vet all of our owners to make sure they're all on the same page, that they will not exceed the salary cap that will be league first and everything. Um, and this is also going back to Bassett's probity. I forgot to mention Bassett not only paid his players in the WFL, there were times where he was helping his fellow owners to meet payroll um, in the WFL. He was a very league first man in his thinking. So, you know, Bassett really studies Dixon's prospectus and, feels like Dixon is a man of his word and a man of vision. And his, his idea is, okay, well, if we play, if we play only in the spring and we truly have salary control, I can get into this. I, I can, I can get into this. I want, I want your team in Tampa. And he slowly starts to build, uh, build his bandits. So that's, that's how he gets into the USFL. How, how does, how does Burt Reynolds come into the mix? Burt Reynolds is uh, a Florida, a Florida boy. Um, like I said, he was a football star at Florida State. Did they know and, each other socially? Was that it? Well, because Bassett was a film producer ah, right. and uh, also knew a lot of people in the music industry. And so through connections, he gets to meet uh, Burt Reynolds and convinces Burt Reynolds to buy a 5% stake. In the bandits, there is this misconception that, you know, like Bassett and Reynolds were 50 50 partners. You know, Reynolds was about a 5% owner, but definitely at first he was the public face of the franchise. And it's just a shrewd uh, marketing maneuver on Bassett's part is to invite an actor with a football pedigree uh, to join. And at this time, in 1982, there is no bigger Hollywood star than Burt Reynolds. You know, you've got the, now these are not exactly Citizen Kane level films, but you've got the Cannonball Run franchise, the Smoking and the Bandit franchise, uh, the Longest Yard, Gator. I mean, he, he's posting hit after hit after hit. And so he's just a great way to get a lot of buzz um, in the stadium. So that, that's how Reynolds uh, is involved. But one of the things that I think you'll 
adore is that Bassett studies the two teams in Tampa. He studies the Buccaneers and he studies the Rowdies. And he realizes that I have to do opposite what the Bucks do. And I have to pattern myself after what the Rowdies do. Because he went to a Rowdies game and he was really impressed that out of the 60,000 some odd spectators at a Rowdies game, it seemed like 50% of them were children under the age of 12. And he says, this, this is smart. How the, the Rowdies are making sure kids are getting into the game. Uh, that's how you grow. That's how you grow your sport. You make it a family-friendly environment. You know, you don't charge an obscene amount of money for a game like the Bucks are doing and then provide just a game. You have family-friendly policies and family-friendly ticket prices like the Rowdies do, and you make a day at the game almost seem like a family picnic. So I know your NASL passion. I, I you know, I, so <laughs> I know that you must love that part. Um, and so he, he sets out marketing. He actually invites season ticket holders from the Bucks and the Bandits to a, a large conference at a, a convention center in Tampa and just says, um, tell me what you guys want. I'm starting a football team. Tell me what you guys want in a football team. And he's getting ideas like we want them to be involved in the community because the, you know, the Buccaneers do some uh, community work, but they're kind of holding Tampa at arm's length. You know, the fans are saying, no, we want, we want the players in the community. We want a lot of involvement and engagement. Um, we want fight songs. We want dancing. We want music. We, you know, so, so he's taking notes and, you know, bandits end up having a great fight song sung by Jerry Reed, um, who was Cletus in the Smokey and the Bandit movies. Uh, they have dancers uh, in the stands and on the sidelines, which is kind of a precursor to what you see at NFL games today. You know, they have a horse running around the inside of the stadium that the kids can kind of go and get pictures with, uh, which is a big deal. So he just creates this, this family-friendly environment. And then um, he just starts working on promotions. He lets his imagination run wild. Um, his secretary, who was just a peach to, to talk with, uh, told me that he would always fly coach. You know, he could afford to fly first class, but he always chose to travel and coach because he, he wanted to talk to the salesmen uh, who were traveling around and getting their ideas. And, you know, he says one day he sat on the plane next to somebody and said, I'm a genie. Rub my lamp and tell me what you want. And the guy said, I want somebody to pay off my mortgage. And Bassett went back to the bandits and talked to his PR director and said, we're going to pay off somebody's mortgage next game. And, you know, they called a lawyer and the lawyer was like, are you crazy? You can't do that. And he's like, no, no, we're going to figure it out. We're going to draw a ticket. And if we draw your ticket, we're paying off your mortgage no matter how much you owe. And they got like 65,000 people to the next game when he announced that, you know, they were going to have a mortgage burning uh, at halftime of a bandits game. So, you know, so this is this is his nirvana here. That's great. I mean, yeah, he, he definitely strikes me as being not only promotional flair, but sort of a I'm going to say an owner of the people, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, is this apocryphal uh, that, that the bandit name for the team um, 
I, 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 my sense is that a lot of people think that because of Burt Reynolds' involvement and smoking the band in the movie and stuff, that's where the name came from. But I don't think that's true. I, I, I actually, I actually think it is. It's, it's, a, it's a nice wink and a nod. Um, although the Bassets had a family dog named Bandit, I do not think that they would have named the franchise after the family dog. And I think it's too coincidental that the helmet logo um, of the bandits is not that different than the bandit logo on the side of Cletus snowman's truck in the Smokey and the bandit movies. Uh, I think it's too coincidental that their red Jersey matches the red shirt that Burt Reynolds wore in the bandit movies. <laughs> so and, I, I, and, the, I, and the Jerry reads a bandit ball song. I, yeah. You yeah. probably, I want, look, you know, this is one of the great, um, uh, you know, un- unfortunate uh, laments of mine. I, 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 I truly was trying to figure out a way to get to Burt Reynolds a couple of years ago when we kind of got the show off the ground because I really wanted to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I tried. I thought I was making some progress. And then, of course, he he, he passed. So we never yeah. can really get that full story. And Jerry Reed's no longer with us either, uh, let alone Bassett. Uh, so, I, you know, whatever. Maybe our audience might have uh, or our Tampa-based uh, 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 listeners, St. Pete-based listeners might have. Uh, the the full untold story about mm-hmm. sort of that, but I, I tend to agree with you that it does seem too convenient that uh, given all the extra marketing uh, uh, stuff that comes along with the name Bandit, wh- wh- how that wouldn't be part of the the mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, like I said, yeah, it's, co- it's just too coincidental. Um, but I, I I do apologize. I feel like I went down his uh, his uh, marketing rabbit hole a little bit, but I never actually talked about the team. Well, but, uh, yeah, let's talk simple. about the team quickly and then maybe also his role in in the league itself, right? Because he obviously became uh, – it was obviously one of the more successful franchises from the gate and, and onward, but also because of all that stuff you're talking about. But he also sort of gained credibility amongst uh, the league ownership generally and in particular uh, a wing of that ownership league as things became a little bit more – divisive uh in the latter part of the league's existence yes he is a strict adherent and i would dare say apostle for the dixon plan which is the fiscal responsibility plan of having low player salaries you know everybody still gets their you know because they had that wonderful regional draft that he was able to take advantage of so the bandits had a slightly unfair advantage in that you know they were the territory they held the territorial rights to Florida, Florida State, and Miami. Um, but you know that you know we're going to have homegrown talent, low payroll, and we're just going to put an exciting product on the field. And over a few years, maybe a decade or so, we'll grow to the point that either the NFL wants to merge our teams, or we grow to the point that the NFL would like to co-opt us a little bit and maybe use our spring product as a way for them to put developmental players. So that was his eye to the future. He, 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 he knew if it was run successfully enough that eventually um, it would grow into something that the NFL would have to deal with in a merger type situation, um, but not something that could be done in just one or two years, which I know we'll be getting to in a few moments. So he, and so he um, championed that, when he saw teams that were violating that specifically that first year, the Chicago blitz uh, with George Allen was violating the salary cap left, right, and center. 
He was engaging in war of words uh, with George Allen constantly telling them that he was, you know, going to ruin the Blitz. And if he ruined the Blitz, losing a team in Chicago would pull down the credibility of the entire league. You know, Allen kind of told him to get stuffed. What do you know? You know, you're, you were a failure in the World Football League. So there's these heated war of words between him and Allen in 1983. Um, and while the Blitz have a more successful season record-wise, the Bandits don't make the playoffs but have a winning record. The Blitz make the playoffs, but the Blitz, as we know them, pretty much go kaput after 1983. The owner of the team is just tired of losing all of that money, and he transfers them down to Phoenix. You know, So there's a new Blitz team in the 84, but it's not related to the George Allen team. So there's, there's just this huge fight going on and Bassett's slowly getting people on his side. And when Donald Trump comes in in 1984, Donald Trump gets people on his side. And this is uh, the dichotomy. You know, Bassett has a relatively low payroll, but through the imaginative coaching of Steve Spurrier and through Bassett's shrewd marketing, he has the most successful team financially in the USFL. He's drawing more fans on average per game than the Buccaneers are. So think about that for a moment. We, we like to make fun of the USFL in a way, but one USFL team that had to compete with an NFL rival actually drew more fans than their NFL rival. And he's doing that on a shoestring budget adhering to the Dixon plan. And so that's why he's got a lot of people in his camp. He's proving that it could work. If you just do what I do, it'll work. Well, Trump is a lot flashier. You know, he's a bigger name. He's got a bigger market and he quite frankly has a bigger wallet. And, you know, what the source of that money is, is, you know, coming out slowly, but surely, but he has a bigger wallet at the time. And so he's stating that, Bassett is just small time and that we're never going to get the NFL to take us seriously if we're using minimum wage players and burning mortgages. You, you need to go out and sign superstars and really hurt the NFL in the wallet. And the way to do that is to move uh, to the fall and compete head to head with them. And so Bassett and Trump engage in this uh, war of words and um it goes on for about 18 months or so, and it's at loggerheads. And a lot of the things that we have come to uh, expect of Trump in the last five years, you kind of see in the 80s. You know, when he's confronted by someone of equal power, he resorts to name calling. And so, you know, we see that with John McCain. In the 2010s, John McCain is competing head-to-head with Trump, so he's insulted. Bassett's doing the same thing, so Bassett is referred to not as John Bassett, but as John Bassett of the World Football League. You know, once again, equating him with, uh, um, with his past failures. And Bassett responds that the people who are following Trump are following somebody who is just making things up. And, um, he has a wonderful quote about uh, Trump and the people that are following Trump. He says, it's been my experience that when a man with money meets a man with experience, the man with experience 
ends up with the money and the man with the money ends up with an experience. And that is kind of what slowly uh, starts to happen is, is Trump is convincing everybody that we've got a TV contract. You know, we're going to be able to go to the fall. We've got millions. Just let's vote on it. And Trump and uh, Bassett keeps saying, show me the contract. Show me the contract. I want to see this contract before we have this vote. And Trump's like, oh, no, we're just a couple of weeks away from having this contract. Kind of sounds like the healthcare plan. We're just a couple of weeks from having this contract. There is no contract. You know, once they do vote to go to the fall, Trump has to admit that there really is no contract that, you know, so a lot of these people that were making this decision to go uh, to the fall were doing so under uh, under false pretenses. Um, so that's that's the battle. That's uh, that's how they're ending up in these in these different camps. Well, but Bassett, though, essentially becomes kind of the voice of the wing that says, you know, uh, hue to the plan. And mm-hmm. frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining and we've had Jeff Perlman on this show. We've had uh, we have a lot of folks talk about the USFL. I, 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 my sense is that there probably was an overall belief of the ownership group that, yeah, there was some a pot of gold NFL wise or other otherwise uh, at the end of all of this, but, but probably not after two and a half years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, that, that was Bassett's belief. Bassett was on record as stating that, you know, if we operate the way we're going six, seven, eight years down the road, you know, we're not going to certainly be able to operate the same way. Uh, But six or seven, eight years of competition and growing our business slowly two things are going to happen. We're either going to be merged or we're going to become a subsidiary. And either one of those is going to be okay, you know, because we'll still have spring football, you know, whether or not we're our own unique league anymore, who can say, you know, but he was just arguing that there's, you know, when there's two equal factions, eventually they have to merge together. They cannot go on battling each other forever. All right. Well, let's talk about sort of how how this ends, because it, it's sort of entwined. I, I you know, um, I, one of the sort of the, uh, uh, the the sort of more dramatic moments is that this this vote that has been largely instigated and, and uh, buttressed by by Trump and his bluster. Right. Um, goes heavily towards uh, his desire. It's a 12 to 2 mm-hmm. vote with with Bassett and um, uh, it was uh, Miles Taubman, I believe. The other, the other, the other dissenting vote, the two nay votes, right? So, um, the merger is accepted. There's obviously this gap, a, a lot of question marks, and there's obviously the, the court uh, case sort of wending its way through. A lot of belief or, or betting, frankly, that that's going to go in the USFL's way and stuff. So, but but uh, Bassett's not having any of it. But at the same, you know, and he pulls out, right? He pulls out of the the proposition, and and I I think if I if I've done some of my research correctly, he was even voicing his desire to uh, create either another league or some other uh, multi-sport thing or something. I don't Mm -hmm. know. It just seems like it was some kind of like, I'm going to go in a completely different direction. Number one, is that true? And then number two, talk about though, also the same, the thing that's going, his, his health is also deteriorating at the same time, but probably the poorest time for any of that. I mean, not, not that it's a good time at any time, but uh, the poorest uh, uh, timing for for all that to start happening. Yeah, this is um as somebody who 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 grew to really admire and I'll go ahead and just say the word love Bassett while doing this research because he was just such an engaging man. 
uh, this is the part that made me the most uncomfortable is he, he, I won't say unhinged, that's too strong of a word, um, but he does become a lot more erratic during this time because um, in uh, early 1985, he's getting debilitating headaches. And so he goes and has a doctor's appointment. And what they discover is that the cancer they thought they had caught in the late seventies, you know, the skin cancer um, actually has returned and it has metastasized in his brain. And it is now an inoperable tumor in his brain. And they give him only a few months to live. And so he's both looking at his own mortality, but he's also looking at an, institution and the bandits that he perhaps loves not as much as his wife and children but very close because all of the mistakes he made in the WHA all of the mistakes he made in the WFL all of the lessons he learned he he grew from them and he's built his 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 utopia with the bandits, it's a family-friendly organization. It's a cost-effective organization. It's a playoff and title contender. He is out-dueling an NFL team in its own hometown. You know, he's, he's done it. This is his life's dream. And through the machinations of somebody who he has grown to just not respect and who, who many ways... Um, is not somebody who you would associate with probity is taking and putting at risk his baby, his football baby. And so the vote goes against him. You know, he's, he's, he agrees to still participate in the 1985 season because he's got sick. He's got season ticket holders. He, he doesn't want to make the fans of Tampa suffer. So he's committed to the 1985 season but he says that the minute that season is over, the bandits are going to become part of my new endeavor, which is the first all nations sports league or fans is what he calls it. And you were right. It's encompassing spring football and Olympic sports. And um, it's going to be on multiple continents and the franchises will be owned by celebrities, you know, um, and he even signs Randall Cunningham uh, out of UNLV to be a quarterback uh, in this new endeavor. And um, it's just so unwieldy, you know, and it's that thing where as I'm reading it, part of me is just going, oh, Johnny, what are you doing? But I, but I, you also have to realize this is a man facing his own death and and watching his baby die right in front of him. So, so it was a very cumbersome thing that just never takes that just never takes off. Um, we get to 1986 and he is he's fading rapidly. Uh, so he actually does transfer the bandits. The bandits are purchased by another uh, individual. Uh, to play in the 1986 season. I believe they merged with the Orlando Renegades, or that was the plan. I don't know if it ever actually followed uh, through. My memory is hazy on that. Yeah, I, I think it was planned, but it didn't happen, I think. I think you're right. Mm -hmm. um, and so he, he basically, he goes to Toronto realizing um, that this is it. Um, you know, he, he does some, you know, he works with a very aggressive 
uh, cancer doctor, um, a Dr. Falk, who kind of, you know, helps prolong his life a little bit longer. They, you know, they said about six months and he, he managed to live for 18 months, um, fighting all the way till the end. Um, but ultimately he passes away just as the, the great USFL NFL trial, uh, is underway. Uh, so he does pass away before that, that verdict comes, uh, that verdict comes down. So, it's a tragic end to, to somebody, to your point, that, you know, had uh, promotional verve, uh, entrepreneurial spirit, uh, a vision, uh, seemingly love of life, certainly of the sporting variety. Um, and, you know, I, there's a lot of second guessing as to what could have been in the USFL had certain things happened and not happened, right? Number one how that court case ultimately played out uh, actual damages against the, the actual win. Uh, 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 you know, the, the Trump sort of factor and, and maybe staying in spring, if, if that could have uh, been sort of right-sized, but I think frankly, maybe under um, under discussed is what had, what would have happened had uh, Johnny Bassett still have been around for a, a, a bit longer and not have, uh, you know, succumbed to cancer because uh, he was certainly a voice of reason, um, a voice of success. Although we, you know, we kind of glossed over uh, Steve Arkey, his uh, co-owner and his uh, his dalliances and, and issues with the, the feds in, in terms of his banking and his sources of wealth and all that stuff. But you just wonder with a voice like uh, Bassett's at that time, if, if, if the health issues had not sort of uh, come about what would have happened uh to the usfl would it have survived and thrived uh you know uh so many what ifs right and and he's definitely um you know uh, uh have having learned so many different lessons from all these different adventures y- you wonder if he had another uh maybe a fully more successful uh end game uh coming to him had it not been for his his illness yeah, I, uh, speculation is always a little bit rough. Um, I think the most logical speculation is that the USFL, even even if he was fully healthy and had full energy, um, Trump um, was such a force of nature. Is a force of nature. Yeah, you know, I got you know I I do have to give the man credit. He was president of the United States. You don't do that unless you have a lot of fortitude um so he was he was powerful he was entrenched he had his camp so you know the maybe the vote still goes trump's way but i think that bassett and those who would have been aligned with him maybe they splinter off and they form their own spring league and they let trump and those who wanted to go forward you know maybe there would have been some kind of a settlement which was you guys go with our blessing try and take down the nfl good luck to you you we're going to stay in the spring. Um, I think that may have been the most logical conclusion. Um, I also like what his son, John, told me, which was, you know, maybe my dad eventually got in the NFL or maybe he stayed with the bandits for a while, but after another four or five years, he would have gotten bored and he would have sold out and tried to figure out something else because his dad, as he said, his dad was just incapable of relaxing 
and just being satisfied with what was. He was always trying to think of what came next. So um, who, who knows um, what Bassett could have, uh, what Bassett could have done. Yeah, that's um, that sounds about right, right? Sort of a, an itinerant, uh, somebody who st- never sort of wants to stay still and, and has so many great ideas and stuff. And and yeah, maybe maybe some of that sort of multi-sport world league was just sort of a, a truly a bit out there. But this is clearly to me the the takeaway from this story. And I, I you know I, I want to sort of end it with your sort of takeaways or or um, uh, what you think sort of is uh, the legacy or, or or the inspiration or things that we can learn from from his life and story and, and the, and the manifestation of the teams to me, it seems like he's sort of truly the embodiment of, um, of a sports entrepreneur, right. Um, you know, I, it, once we establish a forgotten sports hall of fame on this little show, maybe a few years from now, he's probably in the pantheon. He's certainly, he's probably in the mix. He's on the ballot for sure. Right. Um, this is a guy who, you know, challenged conventions uh, ha- had a promotional streak and then some, uh, seemed to be a player's owner, uh, thought about doing the things the right way, but also had a, had a, uh, a, a flash and a sense of, uh, of, of, uh, of promotional, uh, uh, zest. Um, and, you know, uh, wanted to kind of challenge conventions and, and, uh, have, sounds like have some fun doing it. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite literary characters of all time is Don Quixote. And I, I view Bassett's legacy as being sports Don Quixote. Uh, he took all of the arrows. He took a tremendous beating at times, but he redefined, I think, for a lot of us, especially those of, you know, like you and me who love the stories of these upstart leagues. He redefined what sports success is. I make a point of saying that in this country, we seem to have a binary when it comes to sports. It's all about wins and losses and that only those who win championships are the ultimate winners. And I, and I just view that as such a boring uh, way to look at it because then that means all we ever read about are the Yankees. You know, any book that's written about baseball should just be about the Yankees. Any book that's written about football should just be the Patriots. Uh, I don't want to live in that world. I want to live in a world where the concept of winning is doing more with less, is putting together noble teams that put forth their best effort, provide fair value for the money, and leave their fans feeling better about the sport. And when you define success that way, I view Johnny F. Bassett as being one of the most successful sportsmen uh, in North American history because he wanted to bring spectacle at a reasonable price. He never over-promised or under-delivered. And I, I think that's truly a life worth celebrating and remembering um, because I, I never found, you know, I, I mean, I did try to interview Trump. I did try to interview uh, some of his rivals in the league, but I was just unsuccessful in getting them to return calls. So, so maybe um, somebody would have had a bad word. I interviewed over 60 people for this book and not one of them had a bad word to say about Johnny Bassett. And I, I think that's a heck of a legacy just in itself.
All right, there it is, friends. If you uh, consider yourselves an Ottawa Nationals fan uh, of the old World Hockey Association, the Toronto Toros or the Birmingham Bulls of the WHA, uh, maybe you were a fan of the Memphis Southmen, or maybe you were aware of the Toronto Northmen, or maybe you just remembered them as the Memphis Grizzlies of the WFL. Uh, if you if you fancy yourself uh, once or ever a Tampa Bay Bandits USFL football fan, hell, even if you were a Toronto Buffalo Royals World Team tennis fan, you owe it to yourself to get this book by Dennis Crawford. And of course, that title is The Life and Teams of Johnny F. Bassett, Maverick Entrepreneur of North American Sports. It is published by our friends at McFarland. You will find a convenient link to it from our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode with Dennis Crawford, episode number 206, by golly. And uh, you will find a convenient link that will take you to, I think it's Amazon, yes, uh, where you will get it probably as quick as uh, humanly possible. Uh, You will give us a a few shekels of referral love when you do that. We thank you kindly for such. And by the way, while you're there, uh, why don't you tool around and look at all the other and listen to or download all the other episodes that you might have missed from our uh, treasure trove of almost uh, four years worth now of conversations. Again, that's goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's where all of our, you can just in the search bar there. You can find all all the stuff you're interested in. You want to search by keyword, whatever. Uh, It's all there for you. And of course, the best way is to to subscribe to us or follow us, whatever the verb is now. I know it's sort of evolving and changing as podcasting becomes a bit more mature. But however you want to track us and make sure you get each uh, and every episode as we publish every early Monday morning, make sure you you find us or put us in your podcast player or download, whatever you do. Uh, Just uh, make sure that we're uh, we're in your sites there so we can uh, make sure that you get uh, each and every episode every week. Uh, in a timely fashion. Our uh, email address is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Thank you for those. Uh, and uh, follow us on uh, Twitter at uh, goodseatsstill. Follow us on Instagram at goodseatsstillavailable. Uh, Facebook, there's a little page devoted to us there. Also, we've got a, a weekly email newsletter. You may know that by now, but if you don't, just go to the website and search around. You'll find that. And uh, just opt into that. And we'll send you uh, uh, a weekly notice of uh, stuff coming up. You'll hopefully enjoy that too. Thank you to our good friend, Jerry Payne, the good doctor. Thank you, kind sir, for all your uh, knob twiddling and uh, and the like this week. We appreciate that. And uh, thank you kindly, too, to you, the great listeners out there all over the world and all kinds of nooks and crannies and places that we didn't even know existed. Thanks for your listenership. And uh, until next week, we bid you a fond adieu. Take care and stay healthy. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.
Everyone, the bandit ball is a kind of ball that's an awful lot of fun. 